many times the military on coastal towns where there are military installments, they will take a retired battleship and they will lodge that battleship out in the ocean on a sandbar from the shore. You can still see it from the shore and they will practice with the warplanes bombing that ship. And so that battleship is stuck. It's stuck in place. It's anchored by virtue of being on that sandbar because the water, the current will not take it away. And so it's a sitting duck because it's just being bombarded over and over and over again. It's stuck. And I think many times we are the same way in our lives. We get stuck. What is it that the battleship needs to get unstuck? A high tide, maybe a storm, a rushing wind, a, a strong current to move the battleship off the sandbar. And we're the same way. I mean, what is it that we need when we're stuck? Do we need someone yelling instructions at us? Do we need someone telling us that we, you know, we need to change? We already know that. That would be like yelling swimming instructions at a drowning man. At that point, that's not exactly what he needs. When we're stuck, we need the tide to rise up. We need the rushing water. We need that power, that overwhelming rushing wind, that water. We need to be able to float again. And that is what happens in Romans chapter 8. Paul lifts us up. He lifts us up with all of the actions that God has done for us. Have you lost that? Have you lost that vision in your life about what God has done for us, about the actions of God on our behalf? When we're stuck, we need the strong, rising, rushing waters of the truths of the gospel. And that's what we get in Romans chapter 8. The most important doctrine in all of Scripture is found in the verses that we're studying this morning. It's a big statement. The most important doctrine that we are all, if we are children of God, adopted into his family. That we are heirs with Christ Jesus. This one concept, if you grasp this one concept, it can change your life. It can change your relationships. It can change the way you view God. The way that others see you viewing God. It'll change the way that you communicate your faith to others. If you don't grasp this doctrine, your view, my view of God, will be distorted. We'll communicate a faith that is angry and based on works, even if we say it's based on faith. If our view of God as our Father adopting us into his family is not there, we will live in fear. We'll cause others to live in fear. If you don't grasp this doctrine, that God adopted you as a child, even those deeds in your life that you see as being reverent, the ways that you talk about God, those types of things, the rules you impose on yourself and others, if you don't truly have a vision of God as your Father and what that truly means, even your reverent acts will be irreverent. 
because you've misunderstood what it means for God to be our Father. If you grasp this passage, even if you've been a Christian for years, even if you've been a Christian for decades, maybe you have never truly understood what it means that God is our Father. Never understood it. This may be the jolt that you need to get you off of that sandbar. That you are a son. That you are a daughter of the Most High God. Did you hear what I just said? A son, a daughter of the Most High God. Last week we saw that there's two ways of living all through Scripture. There's the way of darkness. There's the way of light. There's the way of the wise. There's the way of the fool. There's the way of being self-centered and being others-focused. There's the narrow path and the wide path. And we see that again here. Look at verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit of slavery and the spirit of adoption or sonship. Two ways. Interesting that Paul characterizes the spirit of slavery as what? Look in your Bibles and you can see. As fear. That is interesting to me. He doesn't say that we'll fall back into sin or fall back into hate or fall back into sadness, but that we will fall into fear. That slavery, spiritual slavery, is slavery to fear. We're told in Scripture to fear God. That's not the kind of fear he's talking about. The fear of God is a reverence for God but not a terror. The servant in the parable of the talents who was afraid of the master, he was the one who was condemned because of his fear, his wrong fear. As a husband and as a father, you know, there's times when we are faced with uh, situations that um, jolt us, scary situations, maybe with our kids, maybe in our home, whatever, when we kind of lose control. And I don't know about you, but when I'm faced with one of those situations, many times I will lash out in anger. And that anger is not because of anything inside of me that's necessarily angry. It's because of fear. When I'm afraid, I get angry. When I lose control, my default mode when I'm afraid, when I'm not responding in trust, is fear, is anger, sinful responses. When I react in fear, when you react in fear, inevitably, you are not showing love to those around you. Because fear is the opposite of love. Paul says we're no longer slaves to fear. No longer slaves to what he literally means here is no longer slaves to the law of God. No longer slaves to wondering whether we measure up or not. I believe that American Christianity, especially when it becomes political, as it mirrors the rest of our country, has become fear-based. American Christians' fear is so great, the fear of losing political power that many justify, ignore, or even defend things that are clearly immoral. When you live in fear, you react 
in fear. You react in anger, and we abandon Christianity. But we are no longer slaves. We're free from the spirit of fear. Fear, listen, is the chief barrier of the Christian mission. Fear is the chief barrier of the Christian mission. It's the chief barrier to our mission at Reach Church, to live to reach all people with nothing but Jesus. When we're gripped by a spirit of fear, it plays out in the way we view God, in the way we pass on God to others, to our children, the way we parent our children, the way we relate to one another, our relationships. We can have fear of leaving a relationship that's bad for us, leading us away from God. We can experience a fear of leaving behind a sin, an addictive behavior, because it seems so important to us. We can live in fear about what others believe about us or think about us or are saying about us. We can live in fear when it comes to the law of God. Are we obeying the right way? Are they obeying the right way? More importantly, Galatians 5.1, Paul says, we are no longer slaves to the law of God. Christ has truly set us free. Now make sure that you stay free, Paul says, and don't get tied up again in slavery to the law. That is incredible. Slavery to the law means you're looking for formulas, for predictability, for control, for lists of things that will help you follow what you see as God's law. And many times in our attempts to be reverent to God through obedience to the law, we become irreverent to God because we have misunderstood his character in the first place. Fear-based Christianity is what I hope Reed's church will not only avoid like the plague, but condemn. It needs to be condemned. It's gripped our nation. A fear-based Christianity. We are in bondage. We're, in, we're enslaved to so much of what goes on out there. Being just led around by our noses because of fear. That's what it is. When we live in fear of the law of God, what is it that's driving our fear? It's a fear that God doesn't love us. It's a lack of insurance. It's a fear that we don't measure up, a lack of assurance that God loves us today as much as he will ever love us. That it doesn't matter what you do. If you are a child of God, you may be disciplined, but his love for you does not change. We are adopted into his family. Just as we love our children, who sometimes drive us crazy, whether they're getting it right or getting it wrong, our love actually can deepen for them when they're getting it wrong. We can actually love them even more, with even more of our hearts when they're getting it wrong, that we are adopted in his family and nothing can separate us from that. And there's no but that follows after what I just said. We just let that statement of the gospel settle into our hearts, and that will be the tide that carries us along. Spirit of slavery, spirit of adoption. Which one are you mired in right now? You know, there's been times that I've been downstairs in our home watching TV, and 
I'll call out to one of the kids, usually Molly, and she'll be upstairs doing whatever. And I'll call out to her, Molly, come here, come here. And she'll come downstairs and I'll say, um, can you get me a drink of water? And she's like, you know, never disrespectfully, I'll never do that. And she never says it disrespectfully to me. She's like, what am I, your slave? You know, um, and I'm like, yeah, you are definitely my slave. What part of that do you not understand? Uh, the reality is that children in a loving relationship with their parents, they're not slaves, but they're children. Loved children, sons, daughters. You ever stop to think that maybe God gets a kick out of you? I mean, I know he gets a kick out of me. I know it. I don't know why he allows me to do what I'm doing right now, preaching. I get a kick out of that. Paul says, when you become a Christian, you're set free. When you become a Christian, you're no longer given over to a spirit of slavery, of fear. Are you a child of God or are you still a slave? How do you know if you're a child of God? Look at verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God or all who are governed by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption. It's worth reading again and again as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. For all who are led by the Spirit or indwelled by the Spirit or governed by the Spirit. Listen, when you follow someone, you become like that someone. Are you led by the Spirit? Are you following after the Holy Spirit of Christ? If you are, you're becoming more and more like Jesus. If you're not following Jesus, you're not a Christ follower. You know, when you see a family of ducks, no one doubts who the father is. You see the duck, the father, right in the front. Many times people will say, you know, I can't imagine being a pastor. I can't imagine doing what you do, speaking in front of people, you know, counseling people. It, it's such a hard, difficult job. And what I'll tell them is I'll say, it's not the most difficult job that I do. The most difficult job that I do is a job that many of you do, is being a parent, is being a father. The most challenging, perplexing, difficult job is being a dad, is being a mom. Why? Because we're forming little human beings. And we all become like our parents. Who are you following? Who are you following after? And what are you becoming as a result? Even when we don't want to become like our parents, we become just like our parents. Isn't that true? In so many different ways, it's like a natural gravitational pull in the movie Tarzan. He's raised by monkeys. So what does he act like? A monkey. That's what happens. My son, CJ, he's 11, and 
Every now and then, he'll act like a crazy man in the house. I mean, he'll start singing at the top of his lungs some random song, or he'll start doing something to his sisters, and he just wants them to respond. He's waiting for them to respond. And many times, I will just be sitting innocently by, and I'll be the one who gets yelled at for CJ's behavior. (laughs) You know, why is that? They'll say, he gets it from you. (laughs) You are the one who sings at the top of your lungs every now and then, spontaneous song, or does things waiting for someone to just respond in some way, looking for that response. He's like you because he's following you. Who are you following? We even become like our parents in little mannerisms they have. My dad, he had this very strange mannerism where when he would walk up the steps, he would put his head up as he's walking up the steps. And I just remember that as a kid, he's always putting his head up walking up the steps. Why is he putting his head up while he's walking up the steps? It's weird, you know? And so what do you think I do as an adult? Walking up the steps with my head up. You know, it's because... He's my dad. I follow him. I become like him. When he would be on the phone in a deep conversation, he would put his hand like near his eye and he'd squint his face. I remember that as a kid just seeing that. Why is he doing that? And so what do I do now as an adult? I'm on the phone. I, I catch myself doing exactly what he does. Does We become like our parents. One of the things we do during the week here at the church is we'll find a couple of sermon clips and we will post them on social media. It'll be a two or three minute clip from something in the sermon that we want to share. And I was watching one of the clips this past week and what struck me was that our parents, my dad, who was the founding pastor of the church, he didn't hand down to me things like, you know, clothes and what kind of clothes you wear, what kind of style of ministry you do, and things like that. But what I heard was the theology, that legacy of theology being passed down to us, the sovereignty of God, the Holy Spirit that we have that same power through the Holy Spirit. And this has led us to say again and again and again, nothing but Jesus, nothing but Jesus, nothing but Jesus. We become like those that we follow. Who are you following? Romans 8, 14. Again, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. If you are following after rules... You will look like rules. If you're following after political Christianity, you look like the political Christian leaders out there. That's what you'll look like. That's what you'll sound like. That's what you'll be if that's what you're following. If you're following after a distorted view of the Father, you will look like that distorted view of the Father. If you're following Jesus, the Holy Spirit of Christ, you will look more and more and more like Jesus. If Jesus is the center of your Christianity, listen, not even the Bible being the center of your Christianity as inerrant and holy as the Word of God is. That's not even the center of our Christianity. If Jesus is the center of your Christianity, 
Not church being the center of your Christianity. Not your theology or your ideas being the center of your Christianity or your rules or your behavior or like I said earlier, your politics. But if Jesus is the center of your faith, you are being led by him, you'll become more and more like him. Others around you will be drawn to that or repelled by that and will become more and more like Jesus. Nothing but Jesus. I can't tell you how many times this past week, just this past week, how many situations that happened, how many you know, little skirmishes or conflicts that maybe I got drawn into, ideas, whatever, and then at the end of the day, the answer every single time was nothing but Jesus. Every time. I mean, people, you know, with this angry, distorted view of God. These self-imposed rules of religion or whatever. In every single case, no matter what the discussion was, the end was nothing but Jesus. Are you following him? Are you led by the Spirit of God? Romans 8.16 The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. You know, I don't know about you, but when I sin, and when I hear verses like this about God loving us, about assurance of salvation, things like that, it's difficult to receive that because I'm a sinner, because I'm guilty at times, because I think of all of the stuff that I've done and thought, I mean, how could God truly love me? How could I have salvation? You know, it's been said by psychologists that if their patients were just forgiven of their sins and had that type of assurance of forgiveness of sins, they would lose half of their patients because that's one of the biggest problems. Think about it. If everything each one of us has done, if all of our text messages from the past 15 years, all of those text messages, if all of the emails that we've written, if all of the words that we've said, if all of our browsing history for the past 10, 15 years, all of our actions, all of our thoughts, all of our motives, if all of that were to be revealed to the entire world, who would be left in our life? Now, if all of us had that happen in our lives, we'd be a lot less judgmental of others, wouldn't we? There'd be a lot more peace between us. My point is this. If you're not the worst sinner that you know, you don't know yourself very well. So we have a huge problem when it comes to God. So how can I talk about assurance of salvation when, I don't know about you, but when I hear that list of all of those things, I'm guilty. God knows all of it. So if all of that's laid bare before God, and I want you to imagine that you're in a courtroom and you're on trial and one witness after another comes and testifies against you, accuses you one after another about this text message or that one, this email or that one, this thing that you looked on the computer or that thing you looked on the computer, the words you say, 
Relationships broken, one thing after another, one witness after another. You're on trial for your life, and you're guilty. But then behind you, someone walks in. It's the star witness, and that witness is the Holy Spirit. And what Paul's saying here is that the Holy Spirit testifies that you are a son, that you are a daughter of God. He testifies that he belongs to my Father, our Father in heaven. He belongs to me. It's done. Utter security. A done deal. It cannot be taken away. No one can snatch them out of my hands. His righteousness is our righteousness. The star witness. The Father chose him He didn't change his mind. Case closed. Romans 8.16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Not only is he guilty, but... Look at what it says in verse 17. That not only does he testify for us, but we are an heir. See that? I mean, that's just incredible. Everything the Father gives to the Son, he gives to us. Adoption was common during Roman times. Many times, families would adopt adult males because they didn't have any sons. They didn't have an heir. And by law, everything went from the father to the firstborn son. So they would adopt adult males. But what would happen is that they had to be careful because when they would adopt the adult male, Everything that adult male, everything their adopted son had done in life, every debt he had, every sin he had committed, whatever it was that he had, the father took on as a liability to himself. And the adopted son, what does he get? Every good thing that the father has, his inheritance, undeserved, given to him as a gift. Paul is saying... Everything that Jesus gets, the child of God gets. Everything. And what does the son get? Colossians 1, for by him all things were created in heaven on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, or rulers, or authorities. All things were created through him and, listen, for him. He is before all things. In him all things hold together. What does the son, the daughter, if you're a child of God, what do you inherit? Everything. It's all his. And we inherit that as heirs. All of creation. Every tree. Every mountain, every ocean, every moon, every planet, every sun. Every star system. Every galaxy, the the trillions of galaxies that are out there. 
the parallel universes, if those exist as well. All of it, whatever's been created, was given to Jesus through him, for him, and is given to us as children of God. Amazing. Very big deal. Verse 15, again, you didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now, this name, Abba, is so interesting. It's a word of worship. Back in December, we did a series called Songs of Christmas, and we looked at different words of worship. One of them was hallelujah, and it's a word that's not really translated in other languages. It's transliterated in other uh, languages because when you see hallelujah in other languages, you can recognize hallelujah. It's a universal word. Abba is the same way. It means father. It's a worship and a word of worship, of intimate worship. So Paul says, we cry, Father, Father. But that's not really what he's saying there. The whole verse is in Greek, but then he uses an Aramaic term, Abba. It's like he's saying, I can't really find the right word to describe what our relationship is like with the Father. I can't really find it. So he finds this Aramaic word, Abba, that means dear, that means dear father. You still have potter, potter, the term of reverence, but you have dear father. Some have said Abba means daddy or papa. I remember growing up, and I've shared this before, when I would hear preachers or youth leaders or Bible teachers talk about this verse, and they would get all emotional, and they would start saying, this word means daddy, and we all need to start saying daddy when we pray, and papa when we pray, and things like that. I thought, that's weird. That's very strange. As a 40-something-year-old man who lost his brother, lost friends, who has children growing up, teenage daughters growing up, God help me. <laughs> it doesn't seem so weird now. It doesn't seem so weird now. You know, sometimes I think people who get that, who pray that way, who see the father in, as daddy or whatever it is, Sometimes I think they have something that I don't have, some sort of intimacy that I may not have. That's why many times when you see people worshiping in ways that you don't, maybe step back and say, is there something I'm missing? Is there something I don't have? Paul says, we cry out, Abba, Father. We only see this word, Abba, used three times in the New Testament. That's it, three times. Here, Galatians 4, and in Mark 14, and Jesus said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, Abba, Father, yet not what I will, but what you will. Paul says, we cry out, to our Father, Abba, Father, we cry out the same way Jesus is crying out here 
in the garden, the same way he cried out on the cross. When all around my soul gives way, crying out. Why? Because we need our Father when we suffer. 8.17, we're heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. Look, provided because since we suffer with him, since we suffer with him, in order that we may be glorified with him, the heart of a Christian at its core is the heart of a martyr. We don't share in his suffering on the cross. That part's finished. But we share in his suffering, in his life, in his perfect obedience. We will have sufferings as a Christian. Jesus said, take up your cross daily and follow me. And then Paul doesn't say, being God's child means suffering, accept it. Paul says, being God's child means suffering, but let me explain why this is worth accepting. Paul doesn't say, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may inherit something. He uses that before, it's glorious. Why? Because the idea of earthly inheritance here is way too small vision. Paul said, I has not seen, ear hasn't heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. Paul ratchets it up and he says, the glory that will be revealed in us. No earthly metaphor can do justice for what our Father and for what our brother, Jesus, is preparing for us now. The glory that Paul says will be revealed in us. Paul says elsewhere, our sufferings, our sufferings are achieving for us an eternal weight of glory. God's plan isn't just to keep us out of hell, but to glorify his sons and his daughters, just like Jesus. And then he says in 18, I consider that these sufferings of this present time, whatever it is you're going through right now, and in this room, it's a lot, and it isn't easy. These sufferings are not worth comparing. I mean, that is such a gift, that Bible verse not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us when we consider our sufferings, the price that we pay for following Jesus. Paul says, I reckon, I've calculated it, I've done the math, I've figured it out, and it's not worth comparing with an eternal glory in heaven. What we get isn't just inheritance, that's too earthly, that's too small, but it's glory that we get. It's glorification, the final stage of your salvation. When you're finally saved, that's what you get as sons and daughters of the Most High. One of our catechisms says, what is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but I belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He is 
fully paid for my sins with his precious blood. He has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, Romans 8, 28, all things must work together for my good because I belong to him, to Christ, by his Holy Spirit. He assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. We will suffer as Christians, but we have a dear father, not a father that's far off, not a father who isn't there. We belong to him. When we've strayed from the Father, when we've sinned again, He isn't a Father that's far off. He's a Father who's sitting on His front porch waiting for us to return. I didn't say it. Jesus said it in Luke chapter 15 in the prodigal son. I mean, how could we miss that? The Father is sitting on the porch waiting for His brat son who wished Him dead to return. I know what I would have said to the son, and I know what many of you would have said to the son, but when he comes, he runs to his son. He runs to him, he jumps on him, he kisses him. He doesn't wait for an apology even. He doesn't even know if he's sorry or not. He jumps on him, runs to him, gives him a seat of honor, gives him inheritance. He's a father who comes running to us. That's our father. Our view of the father is so distorted. And it leads us to a distorted, fear-based Christianity. Jesus even says, as he said, I'm going to show you what the father is like. I'm going to show you the character of the father. And he says in John 14, if you've seen me, You've seen the Father. Somehow they're two different persons in the Godhead. But if you want to know something about the Father, look at nothing but Jesus. And you'll know about the Father. John 10.30, I and the Father are one. Jesus in the Gospels continually calls God his Father. He prays to the Father. He speaks of his Father's house. He always refers to God as his Father. He talks about going to, to prepare a place to be with his father. Constantly refers to him as his father. Except for one time. Jesus didn't call him father. When Jesus was on the cross, the sky goes dark. The longest an eclipse can last scientifically is seven and a half minutes. The sky goes dark for three hours. Jesus is on the cross. The sins of the world are on him. Your sins, my sins. The one who was perfect, the one who knew no sin, became sin for us. As we read earlier, he took our sins in his body on the tree that he created. At the end of the three hours, Jesus says a prayer. Earlier, he had prayed to the Father. 
Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. But here he cries out a prayer, but it's the first time in Matthew that he speaks to the Father but doesn't call him Father. Matthew 27, 46, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's an echo of Psalm 22, that great prophecy before crucifixion was even invented all the way in the Old Testament. I believe that Jesus didn't call his father father, not because he stopped being his father, but because his father had turned his back on him because Jesus was bearing my sin, your sin. Jesus didn't call his father father in that moment, listen, so that we could call him Father, the great exchange. Jesus was in agony because the Father was now far off. The Father was not near in that moment. The Father was not running to his Son. The Father was not sitting on the front porch waiting for his Son to return. But he had stood up and he had gone inside and he had shut the door because of our sins. Jesus was abandoned in that moment by the Father. Jesus then became an orphan so that we would no longer need to be fatherless, so that we would no longer need to be orphans, but that we could be adopted into his family. How flippantly we take that. How precious is it that we can call the creator of the universe Father? That we can pray to the Father that we're sons and daughters. We can pray to the Father because Jesus hung on that cross for us. The chaplain at the school I went to to receive my doctorate, he's become one of my mentors. And every morning during the times where we were at school, he would give a talk. And I was just struck by his joy by his maturity, by his love for Jesus. He had somehow found something that I see lacking in myself many times and in many other Christians. And during this time, I began to feel called to preach. And so I was working through all kinds of different emotions, different things in my life. It's about 15 years ago. And one of them was to shed this fear I had of dying. I had a fear of dying. Not because I was concerned about myself, but because I was a young father. I was concerned about my children. You know, what would they do without me? I'm the greatest father on planet Earth. How could they possibly survive? And I remember this chaplain, he gave a talk, and this godly, mature, Christ-centered, spirit-filled man I know he shared that his dad, he actually called him daddy, southern guy. He said he died when he was 11 years old. And yet here standing in front of me was this man who was filled with the spirit, filled with joy, who was well-rounded, who was okay. His father had died. And he shared that one of his friends said to him when he died, he said, I have a really good father. I want to share him with you. I have a really good father. 
I want to share him with you. You and I can share my dad, his friend said. And while that sounds great, it usually doesn't work out very well. Why? Because earthly fathers are temporal. Some of you are listening to this message and you have a a father who has not been good. And it's difficult. Jesus tells us that he has a good father, perfect father, one that you can go to, one who knows everything about you and still get to kick out of you. And we are orphans. And Jesus says, I want to share my father with you. Because Jesus shares his father with us, are we compelled to share that father with others? I mean, when you're in a small group of people and you're sharing your stories, you're sharing your testimonies, and someone starts and they say, I was adopted. What do you think in that moment? You think that's key to their story. That's huge. That dictates the rest of their story when someone's adopted. It's a really big deal. You'll skip over that. It's amazing to me to hear many times where adopted children have come from fatherless, motherless, abandoned. Some of you who went to Happy Life in Kenya, babies left in trash cans, starving, adopted into a family. And everything that family has, they get. Those are some of the most amazing stories. Listen, you, if you're a child of God, were adopted. You have that story. Everything grows from that story. It's just as important as an earthly adoption. You wouldn't skip over that part. That's good news. That the Father loves each one of his children as much as he loves his perfect, righteous, good, loving son. That should change everything. It's not a game changer, but an everything changer. That's really, really, really good news. And that should lift that ship of your life off of that sandbar, that rushing water, and should propel you, should carry you along. Are you a slave to fear? Are you a slave to certain sins? Are you a slave to what other people think of you? Are you a slave to unforgiveness? Carrying it around, are you a slave to bitterness? Are you a slave to an addiction? Is your life governed by fear? You have been born into God's family. He has drowned and defeated our fears. You are no longer a slave. Stop living like a slave. Stop living like a slave. You're no longer a slave to the law. You are no longer a slave to fear. If you know Jesus, if you know Jesus, you are a child of the living God.